I'm David Pluff. And I'm Steve Schmidt. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Today we're going to be talking to Father James Martin. He's a Jesuit priest, the editor-at-large of America, the Jesuit Review, and he recently wrote an article headlined, How Catholic Leaders Helped Give Rise to Violence at the U.S. Capitol, that we found incredibly brave, clarifying, and really important. But Steve, we're now almost at the end of January 2021. Let's reflect on the events of the past weeks. Well, we've seen American democracy debased, defaced, faith and belief in it poisoned. We've seen the liars for profit regroup, and we know we have a competent administration facing the catastrophe, but we have out there as it regroups and reforms and organizes a profoundly dangerous menace to American democracy. And that's Donald Trump, the America First movement, and much of the Republican leadership in the Congress, a majority in the House that voted to throw out millions of black votes, establish a new Jim Crow caucus, and that's completely obedient to Trump. So it's a momentous month and it's momentous days. And it seems like every 15 minutes, there's another video of Marjorie Taylor Greene assaulting some member of our society. And and the discussion, should she be expelled? Is Kevin McCarthy going to strip the committees? No. Marjorie Taylor Greene is much more the future of the Republican Party in the near term than Mitt Romney is. Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz are much more the future of the Republican Party than Ben Sass is. We see reports this week. There's legislation filed in Arizona to give the state legislature in Arizona the ability to overrule election results that have been certified by the Secretary of State. We see similar efforts in Georgia, including now you know, multiple forms of ID required uh, to request and fill out an absentee ballot. So uh, the forces that want to make it harder to vote, the forces to divide us, the forces of hate are on the rise. People hoped that when Trump was defeated, if that happened, things would get better. They hoped that the Romney ring of the party would reassert itself, but we're reminded every day that all the power in the Republican Party, all the power is in the hands of the anti-democratic forces, those that either are white supremacists themselves or who tolerate it. We now see Republican state parties all around the country basically embracing QAnon. They're worried about primaries, winning them or losing them. And the energy there is getting more dangerous, more insidious, and more destructive. And I think that's what we've learned. So we often talk about 2020 and what a brutal year it has been. 2021, in many respects, is off to a more brutal start because we have the pandemic but we also have these threats to democracy. We have economy that could not be weaker. And I think that it can be very distressing. But I think the thing that's in all of our power is to do something about it. And I think that also can be distressing to people because so many people gave so much of their time during the Trump years, whether it was to defend immigrants, to defend those who were part of the Muslim ban, to defend women's rights, to defend voting rights, got involved in the 18 and 20 elections. Everyone understandably would like a break and some rest. But I think what's clear is the other side isn't resting. The other side is organizing, intensifying. And so it's going to require vigilance from all of us, from citizens and from leaders to protect this sacred thing we call our democracy. So that's, I think, where we are. The thing that gives me hope is we at least have an administration that's being transparent about the pandemic, is trying to use every tool they have to up vaccine production and make the distribution of that more effective. It seems to be their North Star focus, and that's what we missed. 
But Steve, we could bat this back and forth all day long. Let's go to our guest. Coming on the heels of the inauguration of only the second Catholic president in our country's history, John F. Kennedy Jr. being the first, and an unprecedented attack on the Capitol by insurrectionists, many of whom, sadly, were inspired by sermons and homilies that were delivered from pulpits only days before. Father Martin is the perfect guest to help us understand uh, the intersection of religion and politics at this fraught moment in our country's history. Father James Martin led the Democratic National Convention in its closing prayer, a man of conviction, a man of God, a man who speaks his mind clearly that you may have seen many times on news shows. And I'll also add, Steve, I think you and I were both fans of this film. He actually played a Jesuit priest in Martin Scorsese's film, The Irishman, where he performed two baptism early in the film. And he's also the author of a new book, which I know we're both excited to read, titled Learning to Pray, A Guide for Everyone. So Father Martin, welcome to Battleground. Welcome. My pleasure. Father, no, no small number of those people, as they marched up to the Capitol, might have been in a church the preceding Sunday. Mm -hmm. Who are they and what are they? How do you, as a Catholic priest who has spoken directly and courageously in favor of LGBTQ rights and the dignity of all people, how do we think about these people and this movement? And what obligation does the church, particularly the new cardinal in Washington, have to confront this? Because it is an evil cause, if not each individual, and I don't want to ascribe that to them, but the cause that they marched on, the Capitol, in that violent mob was an evil one, in my view, as it mm -hmm. sought to assault democracy, to throw away millions of black votes, wrapped up in the Auschwitz, six million wasn't enough sweatshirts. How should we think about that? I think on many levels, the first thing is to think about these people as our brothers and sisters. That's the first thing, you know, what leads them to do it. And I don't want to rationalize it, but if you're poor or have lost your job and you feel like other people are taking over and that's what you find on Fox News or wherever, then you're going to get angry. If you're told that the election was stolen, you're obviously going to get angry. And then on top of that, if you go to a church where people frame these things, I said this in an article in America magazine. And this is the case in many some Catholic churches, too. If this election is framed, as it was by many church leaders, as pure good versus pure evil, as the party of death, as one cardinal, Cardinal Burke, called the Democrats the party of death because they were pro-choice. I'm pro-life myself, but I would never call them the party of death. If it's framed in terms of life and death, then what you're doing by overthrowing the Capitol is you're striking a blow against death. I mean, some of the rhetoric around this was that it was kind of a near satanic possession. And this is not just QAnon. This is in sort of mainstream Catholic churches, the sort of satanic possession of the Democratic Party. So they see themselves as actually prophets. They don't see themselves as doing anything evil. This is prophetic. This is opposing evil, right? The evils of the stolen election, the evils of uh, abortion, the evils of Satanism and all these things. So part of it is, is helping people understand where they're coming from. And another part of it is challenging that narrative, which is false. It's simply false. And so I, I don't want to go too far in terms of, oh, we need to understand them. That was the 
you know, 8 million articles that happened after <laughs> Donald Trump was elected in the New York Times. And um, I will never forget, this is a somewhat further afield, Fran Lebowitz, the uh, humorist, mm-hmm. who's the subject of a Netflix film, who's a, I'm a big fan of hers. She said, you know, I'm really tired of hearing about what these people want. They want the Confederate flag. That was four years ago. You know, that came true. And so we have to be careful about trying to explain it away. But we do have to try to understand it. And we also have to confront it. Anything that leads to death, that kind of violence is, in fact, an evil. So they are misled. Um, The great irony for me, and I said this in this article in America, so many of these people who count themselves as Christian and pro-life, right, including the priests who led them on, fomented these things that ended up in death. And so we all have to kind of see where these things inevitably lead, where the kind of othering, right, the person as other or different as or subhuman, you know, which was done in Nazi Germany and Rwanda in the 1990s and is being done now in the States in terms of refugees and migrants and black people, you know, they're other, they're different, they're a threat. Because when you dehumanize somebody, you can treat them however you want. Yeah. I I wonder, Father, you gave the benediction at the Democratic National Committee. Mm -hmm. Let's play that if we could and then uh, talk about it. Loving God, help us open our hearts to those most in need. The unemployed parent worried about feeding his or her children. The woman who is underpaid, harassed, or abused the black man or woman who fears for their lives, the immigrant at the border longing for safety, the homeless person looking for a meal, the LGBT teen who is bullied, the unborn child in the womb, the inmate on death row. Help us to be a nation where every life is sacred, all people are loved, and all are welcome. Amen. Eloquent words, Father. What struck me about that, and Steve and I both grew up going to to Mass, I I went to Catholic school, is, um, you know, these sentiments bring me back to how often you'd hear them every Sunday, taking care of the homeless, taking care of the immigrants. And I don't want to suggest that they were never without controversy, but these were bedrock to both the Catholic faith and, and quite frankly, so many religions, both here in in the country and the world. And just the delta between that and our politics today, the delta between that and even our policies. I think uh, so many of the folks that you mentioned in that benediction can get scapegoated. Just reflect on the journey that we've been on that has brought us to this place. Well, it's a, it's a religious journey and it's a secular journey. Mm-hmm. I think the secular journey includes the great divisiveness that we have seen. I think, unfortunately, in this last administration, we have seen a kind of permission to hate people. I think it's okay to hate people again publicly. I mean, you have people who are unabashedly and unapologetically white supremacists when that would have disqualified anybody from being listened to back in the day, at least in some parts of the country. And religiously, I think that we've also become very divisive. The Catholic Church is divided. Pope Francis, unfortunately, for many people, is preaching the gospel, and that includes taking care of the poor, the migrant, the refugee, as well as the unborn. But it's become so um, politicized and polarized that it's almost as if no matter what Pope Francis says, people object to it. But I, I think those two things have, in a sense, amplified one another. So the secular divisions amplified the divisions within the church and vice versa. And so you get this tremendous polarization such that people on either side are now really not listening to one another and have a whole different idea of what facts are and what truth is, which is kind of shocking. But in fact, there is only one truth. There is only one reality, 
in the secular sense, right? There's not an alternate reality, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of forces that are invested in the idea that truth is fungible, right? Mm-hmm. That it's relative. How should we think about that? Because it seems to me that the obliteration of the line in terms of being able to discern truth from alternate reality from the lie is a, is a profound threat to everything, both the sacred and the secular. Yeah, I think that's correct. I think a lot of it comes from fear. I mean, I think most of this is fear. So there's a line in the New Testament that says, perfect love casts out fear, which is a lovely line. I think perfect fear casts out love as well. And so this fear that people who are different, people who are of different color, different religion, um, different even political beliefs, uh, different sexuality or gender, it's really potent, especially refugees and migrants, fear of the, the refugee and migrant as the other. And so it's very easy to play on these fears. And you're right, what happens in terms of the truth being, you know, as you said, fungible, is sinful. I mean, there's a reason why one of the Ten Commandments is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, right? I mean, these are sins that are being committed. And you're right, there are certain truths. So is it Daniel Patrick Moynihan that said you have the right to your own opinion, but not to your own yep. facts? Right. And so it, it's sinful. I've been thinking about this a lot since, was it January 6th that the insurrection took place? Yep. Uh, you see the results of sin. So what we saw there was the results of the lies that were being spread, okay? The lies, the hatred, the fear-mongering, okay? And so what is the effect of those sins? Anger, despair, violence, death. And I really, I kept coming back to that line, the wages of sin is death, right? So this, this is where it leads. And I think it's important for me as a religious person to invite people to see that that's what's going on. This is what is going on when people are turning away from truth and love and charity. This is where it leads, that the wages of sin is death. We're going to take a short break. Battleground will be right back with Father James Martin. Welcome back to Battleground. One thing I'm curious, and Father, this phenomenon is particularly pronounced in the evangelical community. Mm -hmm. But you think about faith leaders, religious leaders, of all the people who've walked across the national stage in this country, (laughs) somebody like Donald Trump, who I'm sure himself would admit, you know, with great frequency violates at least eight of the Ten Commandments, seems as far as you could be from someone who is a moral, ethical person. And, you know, there's been reporting on it. But I don't think that phenomenon's gotten enough attention because you had leaders all throughout the country saying that basically this guy was a prophet. We've never had a president who is better suited to lead those of faith. And then you look at the delta between those statements and the way this person lived their lives. And listen, Mm -hmm. I know we lived in a very polarized, partisan environment. So any Republican for some of these leaders is going to play that role. But there seemed to be particularly intensity around Trump. It wasn't just the R behind his name. So I'm just curious what you thought about that as you saw that unfolding over the last few years. I was continually surprised by that as well. Imagine if Barack Obama had done any one of the things that (laughs) Donald Trump had done, what the reaction would have been from religious leaders. And I think it shows a couple of things. Number one, people generally vote their political views. And you had these 
you know, many white evangelicals and Catholics and all sorts of people voting Republican. I mean, that's basically what was going on. They agreed with his policies. They were against immigrants, you know, all the kinds of things that he was touting. And, you know, a lot of it's, as I said before, I believe out of fear. Now, some people, to take their point of view, you know, were frightened about the loss of jobs, the economy, what was described as this terrible invasion of refugees and migrants, okay? So I think they're acting out of fear. But I think religious leaders have to be held to somewhat of a higher standard in that they excused a lot of the things that he said. I mean, I I thought those, which I can't even repeat on radio, his <laughs> thing about what part of the woman you grab, I thought that would have disqualified him. No, religious leaders said he's sinful like everybody else. So there was this constant rationalization in a way that would have never happened with any other candidate. And so we have to ask, you know, how deep is the person's religion, you know, when they are supporting something like this? I mean, for example, I'll go on the record and say, I'm pro-life and I don't agree with what President Biden was doing with abortion policies, things like that. But I would never say we, we, should, we should ignore that. And it was really discouraging to me to see, particularly on the issue, which is close to my heart, refugees and migrants, how many times religious leaders said, we don't have to pay attention to that part of the Gospels. Right. which says, welcome the stranger, pretty clearly. And so I think a lot of it was just politics and power. It was very little about religion. And you saw religious leaders getting suborned by that and in many cases promoting it. You still have religious leaders saying that the insurrection on uh, January 6th was fine. Yeah, no, it's, it's so distressing. But again, you're right. A lot of it is politics. And so mm -hmm. any presidential candidate or president with an R attached to their name is going to be given wide berth, but it seemed particularly intense with Trump. And again, I just think that it wasn't just about the policies, and it does seem antithetical to the foundation of basically any faith teaching, but the way he talked about the other immigrants was almost embraced. And and so- Oh, it was embraced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Ryan, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, 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 go ahead. So I worked in East Africa in the 90s, and I was there right before the, well, right, right as the genocide in Rwanda was happening. And one of the most embarrassing things, or the shameful things, is that Rwanda, if I'm correct, is 90% Catholic. Okay, so you had many of those people who were killing, I think, 800,000 to a million people were Catholics who went to church every Sunday, right? It's a very religious country. And the question that the Catholic Church had to ask itself is, how deep did that religion take, right? And in the end, it wasn't about Catholicism or Christianity. It was about Hutu versus Tutsi, okay? It sort of very little to do with religion. And I think it's the same here. I really do. I think it has very little to do with, you know, your Christian values. It has more to do with politics and do I like refugees or not? And do I think that black people should be treated in a particular way or not? And is my job being threatened by a black person or a poor person or a refugee or a migrant, right? And is Barack Obama X, Y, Z? And I think that the religion was, I think it helped people to feel like there was some sort of moral framework that they were working from. And I think what happened is I wouldn't really sort of bring in the Catholic church. They provided some priests, some bishops provided the framework, which was abortion. So it was Donald Trump is pro-life and so we can support him. And the only life issue that he seemed to be on the same page with the religious right was abortion. The other ones, let's just say with religion, was abortion. Everything else was completely off base. Right. And it was a new position for him. He had previously been pro-choice. Right. He was just going through the motions. So that's the other thing. Even on an issue like that, this was not somebody who had spent decades uh, fighting alongside them. Yeah, deeply distressing. So I think it was 2000, and, yeah, it was 16, not 15. 
when Donald Trump attacked Pope Francis, you know, that was back when we were naively thinking, well, this will be the thing that tubes him. Mm. <laughs> but what was the reaction, your personal reaction or reaction in the church to that? I mean, we've certainly never seen that in American politics. And it wasn't just that he attacked him. It's the way he did it, the viciousness with what he attacked him. Yeah. You mentioned he made it easy to hate. And so when somebody can hate the Pope, <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's going to be easy to kind of hate and attack anyone. But talk about that a little bit. Well, what happened was someone asked the Pope about Donald Trump's comments about building the wall. Yeah. He said something like, that's not what a Christian says, right? We're about building bridges, not building walls. So he never said Donald Trump's a terrible Christian or a terrible person. He just said that is not a Christian right. thing to say, which is accurate. And of course, Trump came right back and just attacked the Pope. Now, my sense is I don't think that these are kind of calculated things, i.e., you could have said, well, I know that there are many people who are against Pope Francis right now, led by Archbishop Vigano, and there's this whole wing in the church that's ultra-right that's against him, so I'm going to say this in order to sort of firm up my base on the far... No, I think he just was he was just himself and just got mad at him and very petulantly said, you know, I don't agree with this person. I, I tend to think that, I may be wrong, but that these reactions of his are not some grand overarching plan by some kind of calculating fascist dictator. I think it's just him reacting. I don't think there's a whole lot of reflection that's going on. So someone called him a name or he perceives that someone was dissing him and he, he hits right back. And I think that was the same with the Capitol. He didn't like the fact that he was losing. So he, he went to this rally. I don't think he's reading some playbook of how to be a strong man. Maybe he takes cues from people like Putin or other dictators, but I think he's just reacting. I think it's very unreflective. I think it's important to say the Pope was basically talking about what Trump said and did, right. which I th and it and only when he was asked. And I thought that was appropriate. And it is true. You, I mean, a Christian does not talk about other people like animals. They simply shouldn't. Battleground will be right back after a quick break. We're back with Father James Martin. There's been a lot of people talking about Lincoln's second inaugural, you know, with malice towards none, with charity towards all, it's bind up the wounds of the nation. Uh, they forget the paragraph that precedes that paragraph, which was a completion of the task at hand, which was to bring the enemies of the Republic to submission. And he was very fatalistic about that task. But how, how do we think about forgiveness in a country that is going to have to ponder these questions at some level as we move forward. You know, there are some people who have done things that I think that these people should never hold positions of trust again ever in public life to some people who were proximate to the events and it will require restraint and proportion on even the most vociferous critics of what it is that they did to be able to move forward after there's some justice, some accountability that comes from some of the things we've seen play out over the last month. And I just, I wonder what your perspective is in our national life, you know, steeped in the conviction of your faith and Christian and Catholic teaching. Forgiveness is essential. Okay. The first thing to remember is that we're all sinful. We all have our sins and our peccadilloes, some of them more public than others. And so I think that's the first, that's who am I to judge? That's who am I to judge? We praise Pope Francis for saying that about gay people. We need to say that about people on the other side of the aisle politically. 
I think also if you look at countries like South Africa that had the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, that forgiveness doesn't mean that you don't seek the truth and that you don't seek some sort of moral accounting and moral accountability. I think the idea of, you know, we'll just kind of paper this over, I don't think makes a lot of sense. But it also means, to your point, Steve, that forgiveness doesn't mean placing the same people in power. You know, if someone defrauds you, right, let's say they steal all of your money, you know, you could forgive them from your heart. You don't hire them again, right? And you don't say that this person shouldn't pay some sort of penalty, right? The forgiveness is a lot deeper than that. It's not holding on to the anger. It's letting it go, the resentment and the anger. And it's trying to reconcile with that person. And also, I think, you know, there's a sort of school of thought called restorative justice. It's also allowing the other person to change. I don't think it's going to happen, but who knows if in 10 years or 15 years or on his deathbed, Donald Trump doesn't say, I am sorry for the statements I made about all those people. I've gotten to know refugees and migrants. I've gotten to know Democrats. I've gotten to know Barack Obama. I've got whoever. I think part of it is allowing people the room for growth and conversion. Because I think the othering comes when you say that not only is this person unrepentantly evil, but this person cannot ever change. But I think forgiveness is essential. And I think it's, it's very difficult for people because it feels like you're kind of admitting defeat or you're allowing the other person to win. But look, Christ forgives his executioners on the cross and he doesn't lash out at them. I think the most Christian thing, the hardest thing is the forgiving. That is by far the hardest thing. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you and forgive them. That's antithetical to everything almost in the United States right now. But you made it clear using South Africa as an example, and I think we're going to have to have this here. Forgiveness is not in conflict with accountability. Forgiveness right. is not in conflict with consequences. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are some who are trying to combine all those things, that if you have consequences, we can never move on, we can never forgive. I sometimes struggle with, well, we're not going to prosecute the previous administration because that would just, you know, I mean, I think there needs to be some sort of accountability on all sorts of issues. It's essential. It's essential for us, for a people, you know, for a polis, but also for an individual, for the person. I wanted to ask you, do you view hope as a virtue? And if it is, is cynicism its oppositional vice? If cynicism is, and I'll tell you something that I judge that makes me go crazy, I can't stand the televangelist pastors with the private jets and the $20 million mansions. I have a good sense of if Christ were to return tomorrow, what he might say to them. But what obligation do actual Christian leaders have when that is so dominant in the culture? and so infused in our politics to speak out against the actions from which flows sure. torrents of cynicism in the river of our life as a nation, both spiritually, but also secularly. Yeah, I would say, first of all, hope is a virtue. It's also a gift. It's one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, I believe, faith, hope, and charity. And Cynicism, I do think, can be poisonous, right? There's realism and then there's cynicism. I think the cynicism that pervades the United States is really difficult. I mean, look, I take a vow of poverty, so I don't own anything, so I don't have any $20 million or anything. But I would say, uh, you know, I think, and I don't think that religious leaders should live like that. My question back would be, how do you feel about hedge fund managers that have $20 million mansions? I don't think anybody should have a $20 million mansion. 
you know, when there's homeless people in the street. So I think it's not just the Christian religious leaders, it's Christians and everyone per se. I have nothing against Jeff Bezos and all these people that have made billions of dollars since the pandemic started. And look, my bona fides, I went to Wharton. I was a finance major. I worked at GE Capital. All right. So I think capitalism is the best system. There is something really out of whack when you have people making billions of dollars and you have other people who are starving on the street. That is a society that is messed up. And speaking as a Wharton grad, capitalism is like God. You know, we talk about false idols. That's an idol. You cannot critique it. And when Pope Francis does, people mainly on the right go nuts, but a lot of people do. So I would say that no one should have, truly, no one should have that much money, truly. They don't need it. And when there are people on the street, when you get up to heaven and God says to all of us, why did you have a society like that? You say, well, it was capitalism. Sorry, that that is not an excuse. Fly. <laughs> What's that? You need, need better talking points than that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as you talk about this, I think one of my favorite historic events of the 20th century that it's important as a historical event was obscured by the calamity of the First World War. It's portrayed as a romantic event, a tragedy, man's hubris, the sinking of the Titanic. But this was an epic event. This ended the Edwardian age, the outrage that came when people figured out in the inquests in New York and London that the steerage passengers were locked below decks, this was a uh, profoundly important societal moment when that ship went down. In this time we live in where, you know, David and I talk a lot about this, kind of our political views on a kind of a midlife basis is that everywhere you look where you see big, big anything. You see people doing things they shouldn't be doing and the regular person being yep. hurt by it. But this idea that the system we have right now is in any way capitalism of the type which lifts all boats is just fantastical. Let me just say, I think the Titanic imagery um, we can apply to the pandemic. Okay. So who gets to stay at home and work from home? Okay, and I'm speaking to all of us, you know, on this call, people who are privileged, people who have good computers and internet, people who are not quote unquote essential workers. So that's like grocery store clerks and transit workers and mailmen and male women. And who are those people? Those people are essentially people who are poor. And so you have in the pandemic, people who are poor being forced to work, you know, they are heroes. And I do think they're doing something that's very selfless, but they don't have a choice. They're in steerage right now. And a friend of mine told me that they were talking to a grocery store clerk who said, you know what essential means? It means sacrificial. Hmm. That's what that means. And now we see with the pandemic, we see people who are more well off, who are more well connected. Oh, I got a shot. I got a shot. And it's not the people who are poor, uh, who don't have any connections, who are in the slums. It's the people who are wealthy. And so look, we're on the Titanic now. And the question is, does it bother us or not? Or are we all going to try to scam the system? So I think one of Pope Francis's most trenchant critiques is this, right? And he's talked about it in terms of the pandemic, that the pandemic has shown us that there are the haves and the have-nots. You know, at some point we're going to go before God and God's going to say, how could you have let this happen? How could you have let those people expose themselves and then not gotten access to decent health care and then not gotten the vaccine 
And how could you have let people who are mainly people of color and poor die at such high rates? How did that happen? Oh, well, that's capitalism. And no, it's not. It's just grotesque. And that's hard for people to hear on both the left and the right, Republican and Democrat, because that really strikes at sort of American rugged individualism and the laissez-faire economy. And that's Pope Francis's approach. And I agree with him on that. I think we're going to have a lot to answer for. Thank you so much, Father Martin. What a great conversation. We're honored to have you with us today. Thank you. My pleasure. An honor for me, too. Thank you, Father Martin, so much for being with us today. Really thought-provoking discussion. Hopefully for our listeners, I know it was for me. So eager to see what you have to say about the state of our country and in the weeks ahead. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much to Father James Martin for joining us on this episode of Battleground. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams did some great research for this episode. And Christian Castro-Lassell is our executive producer. 